name is Vivian Langford and our producer Andy Britt would like to acknowledge country. BZN3CR acknowledges that it broadcasts from the land stolen from the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the original owners of the land where 3CR is located. Thank you, Andy. Beyond Zero Emissions is a solutions-minded think tank and... At the moment, we are recruiting engineers and sponsors for our work on electrifying industry. As the idea of climate emergency catches hold, we also need artists and creative types of all sorts. And tonight, I'm going to showcase them to give us a bit of soul and put some heart into this awful work that we have to do. It's not really awful. It's fun for us, isn't it, Andy? But... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it keeps you on your toes. <laughs> it keeps us on our toes, but really we can see the emissions are still going up. We'll talk to Deborah Hart about a film called Global Thermostat and Zelda Grimshaw in Cairns about the madness of our times and her A Future Makers project. Last, we'll talk to Mark Pierce, who will tell us about his film Pilliger Rising. So these are all creative people tonight. As the age of offsets and targets is surely over and we go full bore to pull our civilization back from the brink. As a treat, we're starting with a singer, Carmen Morgito, who's in the studio with her guitarist. Could yeah. you say your name? Yeah, sure. Mm. Nia. <laughs> okay, Nia. And he's got a guitar on his knee, so we're ready. Welcome, Carmen and Nia. Please tell us... Uh, Carmen, what are your feelings? I met you in Canberra and there was smoke billowing over the lawns of Parliament and we had all these little tents, we were having a people's assembly. And I'd like to know, and there were a lot of young people there dotted about, but mostly it was sort of retired-looking old people <laughs> like me. And I'd know, what are your feelings about singing us into climate action? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It was um, such a pleasure to meet you at the People's Climate Assembly. I think... For young people, for myself and for friends, for sure, there's definitely a sense that not enough is being done and there's not a, there's definitely a sense of this is our future and this is something that we really have to fight for. Um, for me personally, it does affect me quite emotionally. So having the outlet of being a singer, having the, the creativity behind me, it allows me to express it in a different way. Um, it was very kind of poignant for me at the, at the assembly watching the workshops happen and mm. how there are some amazing people doing amazing things in all sorts of different industries. Mm. I don't have those skills. You know, <laughs> that's not kind of where my um, talents are or even necessarily any kind of expertise. Mm. <laughs> but for me... Um, Having the creative outlet, having the music behind me, you know, allows me to do my bit in in a different way. Um, I think for this particular song, it's one that I sat on for a really long time. Um, I sat on it for several months before it kind of went to be recorded Mm. um, because I was really anxious about what was going on and I didn't want it. I wanted to do it right. I didn't want to use the wrong words. I wanted to make sure the lyrics were strong, the message Mm. was strong um, because we've seen how powerful the youth movement is, you know. That's where the passion is. That's really where it's going to impact. So when we can come together, and that's what this song is about, you know, it's Mm. about coming together and making a change, um, we can do amazing things. So that's the goal. Well, as you say that, you're doing your bit. I think all those people, there were veterinarians, there architects, doctors, all these professional groups, but they need you. They needed you because that lifts the heavy factual real 
kind of at, at atmosphere to let's float with this, let's aim high and let's express the emotion that's there. And I wanted to ask you, look, a lot of people are expressing to me now, especially because of the bushfires over New Year and before that really, um, but really it's come to front of mind, the grief and despair they're feeling at all the damage, irretrievable damage, you know. And do you think they have woken up to climate change and that that it is climate change that's driving some of this catastrophe? And if you think that, you know, that they've woken up, where do you think they should get active? Absolutely. I think so many people have woken up. And for me, I was actually raised in the Blue Mountains and I was there over Christmas and New Year um, and watching, you know, being surrounded by smoke. We were surrounded by it in Mm. Canberra, but Mm. being surrounded by it for you know, a couple of weeks when I went home for the holidays was really impactful. Mm. Of course, all the photos that we saw from mm. Malacuta, from all these towns, very frightening. That are very mm. frightening. Um, but I think that was certainly the conversations that we were having around our dinner table that we would not normally have mm. with certain, you know, parts of my family. They were really saying, this is climate change and this has gone too far and there needs to be action. And I was shocked mm. and very glad that Mm. they've gotten to that point Mm. I think it's really about education you know there are so many people who've done amazing things Greta Thunberg and of course um you know Craig Rocastle with all the uh chasers um doing the war on waste but we've got a lot further to go so it's really about educating what people can do yeah you know right okay so let's hear you sing yes are you ready now Okay, let's hear this song. What's it called? This song is called Houses on Fire, which is inspired by Greta Thunberg's speech. Um, And we've got a launch gig coming up next week, next uh, Tuesday night at the Ember Lounge in St Kilda as well. My house is on fire. Will you call the firemen? Will you break down the door and help me out? There's no escape. World outside's on fire too And the firemen aren't coming They've run dry today Defunded just like health and science And education All the kinds of innovation we really need The smoke is rising And we're rising Make like the house is on fire Make like the house is on fire Make like the house is on fire trade honey better yet don't save the bees save the trees do something to pay off your meaningless degrees cause we'll all come to nothing if we don't start holding the powerful accountable for letting our house burn down while they sit counting their green instead of acting on the science that's been coming and coming and coming and coming and coming and coming make like the house is on fire make like the house is on Make like the house is on fire, we're on fire We are the children and we won't sit down This is our future, it's our turn now We are the future, we are, we are We are the children and we won't sit down We've been waiting, we've been patient now We are the future is on fire make like the house 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 is on fire we're on 
Z2 We're on fire for our future, it's on fire too We've been waiting, we've been watching, we've been prepping and we're judging Age of the Millennial and Gen Z2 We're on fire for our future, it's on fire too We've been waiting, we've been watching, we've been prepping and we're judging It's our turn now, it's our turn now It's our turn now, it's our turn now Make a like, the house is on fire was Carmen Mojito singing Houses on Fire and her launch of that song is at the um, now say it again it's in St Kilda it is at the Ember Lounge next Tuesday the 3rd of March Tuesday the Mm -hmm. 3rd of March the Ember Lounge and it's at 6.30 I think yes doors at 6.30 okay Mm -hmm. thank you very much Carmen okay now we just have time for a little subscription drive listeners you must subscribe to 3CR especially if you're a big organisation like a band I don't think these two are really a band but you know one of those bands with 10 people in it they could subscribe to 3CR it's only $150 I think for a group and that will make the difference to us keeping on air um I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with love, I could hold my head back Thank you. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show with Viv and Andy. Uh, Deborah Hart is in the studio with us tonight. We're so happy having live guests. We usually have them all down the end of the phone somewhere. But tonight, two people. That's marvellous. Three people so far. And uh, tomorrow she'll be at the Nova Cinema where she's on a panel to discuss a new French film by Arthur Riflet called Global Thermostat. 
And it showcases geoengineering solutions, I think, from what I can understand from the you know the um, uh, promotional material. But Deb was one of the climate guardian angels who demonstrated so poignantly in Paris in 2015. If you remember back to then, there were some terrorist attacks and they had this big red ribbon right across the city and these beautiful angels in wintry weather. Really, it seemed to give a lot of uh, theatrical drama to the, the moment in history that that was. Uh, she was also, I think, arrested in the Pilliger Forest, I seem to remember, which we'll talk about later at the end of the show. We'll talk to someone about the Pilliger. And Deb, welcome. What's your book called? Hello, Vivian. Lovely to see you again and be, be part of your show. It's just fantastic. <laughs> fantastic the way you guys, you know, you just keep reminding people that there are solutions and we have alternatives. <laughs> let's, get, let's get with it. Um, yes, the, the book. Yeah. Uh, the book is um, called Guardian Eden and it was published actually on World Environment Day in 2015. So just in the lead up yeah. to the Paris Agreement. So it was, um, yeah, it was really timely. Yeah. And it's been really interesting to see the way that it's evolved because I don't know if you recall that it's, it in and of itself, it's full of polluted meddling stories. Mm. Um, it covers uh, 12 different activists from all different walks yeah. of life who are approaching, um, I guess, making activism real in their own lives and contributing in the ways that they can. Um, it, it aimed to demystify this, you know, ridiculous notion that activists are all kind of, you know, locking themselves to, mm. you know, coal for electricity generators left, right and centre and we're all kind of really, you know, dangerous, yeah. scary people. It's just like we're actually just really concerned citizens. Yeah. So it um, threw it, there were lots of different themes around policies because it was designed for young young people to be able to to challenge grown-ups in their lives who weren't yet engaged and to demonstrate to them that there were, you know, a multitude of ways in which they could become engaged. And so um, at the time it was um, being developed as part of a school curriculum Mm. and then the organisation that we had worked closely with in designing all of the curriculum for it, it was meant to be a piece of persuasive writing pitched against industry rhetoric. So, um, and years like nine, ten in English, yeah. as well as civil society, it, um, you know, humanities, um, science, geography. Anyway, so two weeks before the book was launched, um, that group came under attack from an institute of public affairs, kind of driven campaign. You may recall the um, the inquiry into green groups tax deductibility, yeah. Yeah. which happened. So basically they were frightened away from publishing the book because it was deemed political, oh. which of course is fascinating because, you know, who made access to fresh air and water and, you know, yeah. like a safe environment but political? Can I just interrupt you? Look what the children have done since then. Since 2015, yeah. those children have risen and I swear they've read your book and if it's not <laughs> still available, you'd better republish it. I think it was Greta. <laughs> Greta factor, it was but, the Greta factor. You know, I'm happy. It, yeah. That's kind of what Guardian Eden they set out to achieve. It. And Greta just came along and was like, oh, how brilliant. Oh, this, and okay. can I just say, I yeah. would have dreamt for a Greta.
I said, why didn't she come a little bit earlier so she could be in the book? <laughs> to promote your book. Oh, be in the be book. In the My book. God, she would have oh, been well, an incredible no, chapter. Clue. Not another... that I would have lost any of the no, others. No, no, there's yeah. part two in the pipeline, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've got to talk about this film now, which is very serious, Global Thermostat. I couldn't believe you were on this panel when I saw your name there. I think, well, what can actors and artists <laughs> and all the you know, creative people bring to this terrifying subject? The only person who ever talks about is Clive Hamilton, and, and he is just, you know, he's so much a big warning side over his head when he talks about it. But it's not science fiction, is it? Well, no, it's really terrifying. And um, and to be, to be honest, I was kind of um, questioning why I was going to be on the panel too, but absolutely thrilled and thrilled to be amongst panellists who are yeah. going to be experts in this yeah. sort of area. And I haven't seen the film yet. I'm really looking forward to And listeners, if you haven't got your ticket yet, I really <laughs> think you should. It it does look fascinating. It's hugely important. Um, I, you know, obviously I have to see the film before I form, you know, strong views, except to say that why on earth, when we have all of these natural climate solutions, and you probably have seen Greta's promotion with um, George Monbiot, mm. that incredible clip that shows all of the regenerative mm. um, ways in which we can implement solutions now that are that are compounding and cascading in their effectiveness. Mm. We're only just beginning to understand how when we give natural systems the right conditions and we work really with them to help amplify them, how radically the earth systems can heal. So we're talking about solutions that through something like the Green New Deal could be implemented in local communities all around the world Overnight, for a just a, like a, just a minuscule, a fraction of the cost, they would create local jobs in local economies. They would unite communities, and and they would be really impacting. So, some of the research that's come out of the U.S. shows that on just eleven percent of land that is sitting idle mm. right right now, it's cropland mm. that's dead basically. Mm. If the soil biology was was um, addressed and addressed in ways in which they have done it with the science. And when I'm saying soil biology, I'm, I'm meaning the microbial mm. life, the, the fungi and the, the um, you know, the, the um, you know, yeah. all the worms and all yeah. the bacteria, all the things that actually make the soil alive. So if that was increased um, in just 11% of, of land globally, we could with, we could draw down, we could sequester all the emissions that we're responsible for mm. in a very short period of time. Yeah. So this is what the evidence, the science, the really just fraction, you know, tiny bit of science that we've got available now is already showing us. So, you know, why on earth would we look to highly experimental, um, you know, technologies which always have blowback? I mean... It's just terrifying. But I have to say, I do know the answer. Having asked that question, I know the answer. Because if you're looking at a kind of global financial system of gambling houses mm. who are addicted to kind of get-rich-quick fixes, mm. this is exactly what they love. They're looking for the next big thing, you know, like the subprime, you know, that didn't go so well, you know. Before that we had the dot-com business, you know. They look for opportunities to speculate and create pyramid schemes and that's why they hate prices on carbon. They love carbon trading schemes. Mm. You know, it's 
pretty clear when you stand back and take a look. Well, when we've all seen the film, we'll be able to um, comment more because I think some of those ones you said, the the more benign ones, will be the ones that will be in the film, but there will be other ones where you could just imagine investing in that and, you know, when the world's desperate, you'll make trillions. But yeah. I want to suggest to you that new there's new science now suggesting... And can I just say yeah. when they say they'll make trillions, they actually, it, they don't care whether they'll work or not. No. All they'll care about is how quickly they can speculate and you know that or the it's just like with the dot com if you recall half the time they were just gambling on you know ideas selling them really quickly just totally dodgy you know crazy ideas yeah but but let's get back to geoengineering oh yes science (laughs) is that we have already maybe broken the global thermostat we are entering that sort of territory now that's why the children are so frightened i think they know their science runaway events could transform the world into a biological desert and we know that and i wonder what can we learn from a film like this about cooling the atmosphere perhaps from your point of view do you think it's maybe an ethical discussion because so far I remember interviewing Clive Hamilton 10 years ago and he wrote a book about it and so far the public has not really discussed this it's a little bit like don't go there and it won't happen but I think we have to discuss the morality and the ethics what would you like to see well Absolutely, and I think we need to discuss it within the framework of all of the understandings that we have, you know, such as the the capacity for natural solutions and the fact that, you know, we are, we have already tipped into an extremely dangerous place. So we need kind of everything, everything at once. But what we do need, we need the, all the mitigation, we need all of the sequestration that we can possibly, uh, we can possibly get. But we have to look first at the quickest easiest most affordable opportunities that support local communities because we're going to see a a whole lot of kind of you know societal um, threats to societal organizations so which is another reason why we should be looking straight away and putting money and research into the known solutions because every time we have tried to create systems that override the natural world it's you know it's it's not worked well. Yeah. Think cane toads. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I just like to draw the listeners' attention to an article. There's an art, a magazine called Mother Jones. Now, I, I think you can probably get it online, but I read it in the State Library here in Melbourne. It's the January edition of Mother Jones, an article by Kevin Dunn, and it's called "Warming is Over If We Pay for It." And he c- contradicted what you said before that you know with just this small tweaking. He said, "No, we're going to pay for it big time, like we paid for the space program." And Bernie Sanders, with his Green New Deal, is offering trillions. And the others, he had like a little um, a, a table with how many, like Elizabeth Warren was offering three trillions. Bernie Sanders is offering sixteen point three trillion, and they're talking trillions. The the, the cheapest one was uh, one point five trillion for this kind of transition and I think you've been you know you've known BZE and there's many other think tanks around the world now like this modeling how it could be if we try to think we can get away with it cheaply where we're misguiding ourselves if there's a mm-hmm. 10-year framework we need to think okay spend big spending creates more um, innovation and like with the space program there's going to be a lot of spin-off but put money into every one of these sectors that's what mm-hmm. this article says what do you think mm-hmm. of that well I I fully agree, but I also then would want to look back to the GFC when basically um, roughly the amount of money that they gave to the, you know, global gambling houses Mm. to, you know, 
basically crashed the economy. They gave them the money as bailout money, the, the money that would have actually transitioned the electricity systems mm. for the, globally yeah. to, to renewables. And then turned around in 2009 after, you know, you may recall in Copenhagen, that was that that's a whole program in itself. But yeah. remember recalling that what happened that there. But um, they basically turned around and said, oh, well, we don't have any money yet because, you know, we basically gave it in bailouts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the ties between the ways in which taxpayers have been expected to pay for the, the you know, just the outrageous behaviour of the, I hate using the word, it sounds so kind of, you know, right wing but the elites mm. you know the those who are making the decisions on mm. behalf of the public the public having to pay these ideas that they can hide the contracts under commercial and confidence you mm. know if there's taxpayers money involved in anything taxpayers should be able to see every single term of mm. the contract mm. you know that is our money and that's money that isn't doing you know, great things for the public. That's right. So well, I completely we, agree we with C- him. Christine Milne was on the program last week and she said... She, following I love the, her. Yeah, well, the Davos <laughs> Forum. She said what she picked off in Davos, she said those big companies, they are 20 years ahead of us in their planning. They've, yeah. they've seen the writing on the wall. They know where it's heading. It doesn't sound like that from our media, but they are ahead. And she said they will be demanding bailouts because they'll be too big to fail and our job yep. is to put in yep. place all the renewable energy and all the you know the different farming practices and different transport things as we all know about and listeners to this program know but so that we can't let them say we're too big to fail they'll have to fail <laughs> they will have to fail and i can i say too that one of the things that i think that really must be part of the narrative is reparation payments mm. So, you know, we talk about being on a, a wartime footing. Well, you know, these are the companies that are responsible. Mm. We know exactly who they are. We even have the science to show what their fingerprint is in the atmosphere. So, for instance, BHP is um, 4.8 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas since 1965. Yeah. I think ExxonMobil's around 40 billion, incidentally, in the last um few years they have a tax bill of around or sorry they have made income of around 40 billion and haven't paid Mm. any tax you know these are companies who are regular tax dodgers they are you know excital their own science was telling them in the 70s so they they basically learned ways to manipulate and and deceive the public and you know mess with the public discourse they i mean you know really we should be out in the street with pitchforks and <laughs> at the very least demanding reparation <laughs> payments from those responsible. Or we're talking to Deborah Hart and this was meant to be about geoengineering and the global thermostat, but seeing as neither of us have seen it, I had advice from um, Assistant Associate Professor Peter Christoph um, before this program and he sent me um, a marvellous quote and thank he, I'd like to thank him for his help in framing this uh, program today. He said... Uh, it was a quote from Jeremy Baskins that said, geoengineering is a bad idea whose time has come. And I think our children, no matter what we say, our children and the future children and generations, they will be faced with these questions. It'll be a moral question and maybe they won't be. It, well, there won't be transparency. They won't have the choice, but they will be thinking about it and we need to uh, maybe be thinking about it too. Questions about solar engineering, all of these ones that have horrific side effects, um, 
and, and we should be thinking about it no matter what we do now. And I'd like to ask you, if you could vote, it comes in the um, trailer for the film, someone's asked that question, if you could vote now to go ahead with any of the techniques, those big techniques like seeding the clouds, whitening the clouds or you know, solar engineering, or never, ever, ever touch it, just massively cut emissions now, which way would you vote? Oh, I, I just wouldn't touch it. I'm terrified of who will own and control it. I'm terrified of what it would unleash when, you know, if, if we do say, oh, yeah, great, well, let's let's not address the emissions. Let's just let them keep rising and then let's just go along with these experimental... I mean, I think it is really terrifying and that, that is a great quote. It, you know, it is time to discuss this. Yeah. And, and really, seriously, time to... Um, to rise up as the wonderful song was saying. Yeah, all right. Well, now, so uh, Deborah Hart's staying with us because we've got someone on the line now from Cairns, uh, Zelda Grimshaw. She's one of Deborah Hart's inspirations in the serious business of being future makers. And one of the things that Deborah used to do, apart from the Guardian Angels, um, where they People, I think, really thought they were angels sometimes at some <laughs> of the venues I went to. But they also used to do very satirical things to sort of taunt the politicians who were trying to enter buildings and they'd waylay them with really ridiculous skits and, and, and had a lot of fun but really gave us a lot of heart thinking that, yes, these people are only human. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll meet, they'll have their, they'll come a cropper someday. Right. And I think saving the planet is not what we want. We want to rebuild it in a different way and think to people and musicians they put that different way into our minds and Zelda is a musician with the Australasian Theatre in Cairns and she's made many artistic interventions to help groups like Stop Adani or Extinction Rebellion helping them cut through the media noise all the fear and confusion that we know is being pumped out at us and to touch people's inner reality so Zelda welcome to the radio show. Hi, Viv. Hi, Deborah. Thank you. Hey, Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Zelda, tell us about this madness of our times that we're in and where your theatre of the absurd can take us. Um, I think every, I feel like everybody knows about the madness of the times that we're in. Um, <laughs> and the new project I have isn't, strictly speaking, a theatre project. It's, um, I mean, I've yeah, I think that the absurd kind of theatrical interventions that I've made um, have, as you, as you mentioned, they sort of cut through the noise of it. They cut through the chase because... cut through that noise and cut to the chase because they resonate with people emotionally and they and they make you laugh uh, at the same time as as you're appalled at the, at the content that's being delivered. So... Um, you know, the John Howard ladies were the uh, ladies auxiliary were the, the sort of uber right wing um, nature hating upper class women. You know, they were the, the Sarah Murdoch, really, of, of our time, but not as pretty. And channeling the. Yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't fishing for compliments. But. Um, but yeah, often we see those upper class women as in in the face of people like Sarah Murdoch, um, who's who's very palatable. Um, but you know, those those upper class women, it was sort of 
a chance to pick apart um, the people of my own demographic, not not that I'm from an upper-class background, but the, the white woman who has really a lot invested in the climate crisis. Like, it's, it's where her income comes from. It's where her wealth comes from. She doesn't want system change. She doesn't even want to acknowledge climate change. Um, and, of course, she's socially conservative in all sorts of ways because it's worked for her. She's yeah. married the wealthy guy and it's worked for her. So those were our, our characters, and through those characters, voicing the most appalling things that right-wing people think that they that that are kind of embedded in their discourse but they never come out and say it because that would be disgusting if they mm-hmm. did so it was a way of making the the actually very misogynist and colonizing and homophobic um, underpinnings of of the right-wing fossil fuel magnates apparent Mm. So it was kind of bringing, bringing those hidden underpinning to life through satire. Zelda, can you tell us some of your past stunts? Give us a funny, you know, an anecdote or two about what the ones that you have done that had a big effect. Well, I, I feel like the, the John Howard Ladies Auxiliary were responsible for John Howard losing his seat <laughs> at the 2007 federal election. I like to take credit for that. And we were also obviously responsible for Tony Abbott losing the next election um, because after that we stopped campaigning and look what happened. <laughs> you know, so the proof is in the pudding. But so, describe um, for the listeners what you did. They haven't seen any pictures of this, so I've seen... Some they have to Google. Seriously, they are hilarious. Liz Connor, who is the um, we started the mm. the climax group kind of together. She was she was um, with Zelda. So I spent you you used to cheer me up, you know, when you're just feeling you know despairing, and I was you know writing my body body weight and submissions at that time. So I used to just watch those clips of mm-hmm. you know just of you intercepting and they're just hilarious. But what did they do? The material is Tell us about it. Zelda, what did you do? uh, In the John Howard election, we really picked on his, well, we picked on his views. Um, So we offered him a giant race card and said, look, Johnny, you've just (laughs) got to keep playing the race card. It's just obviously not working. You've got to keep playing it, play it stronger, play it, you know, keep, keep it, Put it on the table, Johnny. Here's your race card. So we had that prop, this giant race card. But we also had electoral Viagra. Um, So we made lots of jokes about, you know, how can you be a standing member when you're flagging in the polls and, (laughs) you know, your polling is weak and we thought we'd offer you this support. It's going to be a very hard election. Um, So we were offering him this electoral Viagra and it was branded xenophobia. So... That was his electoral Viagra, was the fear of the other. Um, and it, I mean, it has been his electoral Viagra. It has been, you know, the, the thing that... Um, well, that and fear of franking credits, apparently. Hmm. Uh, fear of losing franking credits is what gets them across the line. Um, so we did those sorts of interventions. With Tony Abbott, it was, again, about his masculinity, about his hyper-masculinity... I think Tony Abbott's the most um, the most homoerotic homophobe I've ever seen. Um, and so we located his policy briefs because he kept going to election 
discussions and debates and whatever with no policies. So we've said, look, here are your policy briefs, Tony, and it was a pair of Speedos. <laughs> it was the, the Speedos that he uses for the Manly Surf Life Saving and, and how funny that his Manly is his electorate. Um, yeah, so lots of jokes about his masculinity, but, but really using it as a way to expose the kind of more sinister parts of his worldview that really discount most of us as human beings. I think giving um, I've seen some of those stunts on the video and I think the best thing for the all the bystanders and a lot of them are activists there with placards for various sorts it gives them permission to laugh they suddenly see it is these are people with feet of clay you can laugh at them they are ridiculous we've seen all the cartoons but, but mostly we've seen all this very measured stuff in the media that shouldn't be measured it should be exaggerated because they're exaggeratedly bad is that is that your, yeah, so is your method to, to look do that? up from the John Howard ladies, there's um, the Joho Laugh Our Club, what we call them for short, have a YouTube channel. So if you search John Howard ladies yeah. in YouTube, um, you'll find a bunch of clips of the version that Liz and I did together. I later produced a theatre show based around the ladies. And that's on my personal YouTube channel, which is Zelda Dahl or Zelda Dazzle. I should know that. Can you tell us some more recent things you've done? Yeah, more more recently. Yes, more recently, um, one of the most fun uh, stunts that we did was to become climate zombies. So it was... Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about the, the zombie apocalypse, the coming apocalypse, and people are talking about it in a, in a jokey kind of way. But underneath that, there is a real sense that we are approaching apocalyptic times. And, you know, the seri- there are serious climate activists out there who are maybe still campaigning on the one hand. On the other hand, they're prepping. They're apocalypse prepping. You know, they're buying the block of land up in the woods with the, 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 the water source and, you know, off all the major roads and, and that sort of thing. I'm looking at doing it too because um, it's not just the what will happen to the physical world. It's what will happen to the social world as water becomes scarce and food becomes really, really expensive and all those kinds of things. And we're already seeing, you know, that process has begun. So... Um, as Deborah said, urgent change to cut emissions to stop it getting worse needs to happen. So we did this thing about being climate zombies, um, and um, and I just put out a call, and everyone got together in a little car park. I asked people to wear corporate wear because you know the corporate world are already kind of acting like zombies a lot of the time, like just you know walking off the cliff like lemmings. No one's no one's brave to speak up in the board meeting because you might not get that next promotion. So you go along with the climate wrecking yeah. project of your company. So the zombieism already is out there, I think. Well, that, that's um, one, one aspect of it. But what about this one quote on your website that says, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And that's what I think Extinction Rebellion have done. When I see people dancing in the street, when they are energised, when they go to these meetings where they do all different types of workshops and so on, it's a lot of artistry in there. There's a lot of musicians getting there, actors, therapists of all sorts. I feel they're liberating people. You know, they're saying, don't go and prep up in the hills and just look after yourself. 
get get together and make the revolution irresistible because part of it is community that people have been felt feeling isolated but now they can actually have this connection with each other and it's very heart heartening do you yeah you look extinction rebellion them? do that really well um they have put art at the center of their movement um so my new project the future makers yeah aims to do that for the entire climate movement in australia to to bring artists um, closer into the movement and to make the movement more artful yeah. in all of its um, all of its presentations. Um, but before I get to that story, uh, let me tell you what we did with the climate zombies because that was really fun. Um, so we all got together in the car park. I asked people to wear corporate wear and then we just covered ourselves in cornflour. So really easy action to replicate. Wear your corporate wear. Get together, cover yourselves in um, cornflour so your faces are all whited out, your hair's all greyed out, your clothes are all greyed out. Instant kind of shabby zombie look. Um, some people did, you know, a bit of charcoal and a bit of, you know, a bit of blood. Some people went all the way and had the, the latex makeup with a, a nail sticking out of their head and things like that. But it was enough just to be in corporate wear and have that, that white powder coating was enough to make us look zombied. Um, and then we had uh, placards that were just black, um, hand-painted black on newsprint. So, again, really easily easy to replicate um, that said things like the future is ours and, um, you know, apocalypse now. Um, we want coal. Um, Tony Abbott bit me. <laughs> um, all sorts of, you know, funny kinds of things. Um, give us your children. Um, and, you know, we are the zombies, the apocalypse, the climate zombies are coming. And then we shuffled, we did the zombie shuffle, but instead of, like, zombies usually call brains brains, and instead we called coal, coal, and we shuffled our way into our federal MP's office oh. and shuffled around in his office for quite a long time. Um, before the police arrived and told us all to leave the office. So we all shuffled out and nobody <laughs> broke character. This was the incredible thing. This was like 20 people, most of whom have never participated in any kind of theatre training. Um, but one demonstration of what a zombie looks like and sounds like, and they were all there. We've all seen the movies. You know, so <laughs> it was actually hilarious. <laughs> and the images and the footage that we got from that were really powerful and went all over Australia and all over the world. So our local MP was furious and called the police and said, I want them arrested, and he picked people out of the surveillance tape and said, I want you to arrest that one and that one and that one. But we actually hadn't broken any laws. <laughs> there actually wasn't anything the police could charge us with. So mm. Warren Ench, who's our federal MP, uh. um, was you know infuriated. Um, but, you know, I think it's um, giving people a way to express themselves and a way to participate in an action that's not just turn up and listen to some speeches and go yeah, for a march holding right. a placard, but giving people something that's much more participatory and expressive. Yeah. All of that moaning that people were <laughs> able to do, all of the kind of climate grief and the, the tension and frustration and rage that we're all holding as we're watching 
the climate apocalypse unfold. I'm going to um, have to cut people... you off there, Zelda, because we've got Are one you? more person on, on the line who's going to talk to us about his film about the pillager. Okay, well, look so, out for the future makers because future that's makers, what we'll be doing. It's not live yet, is it? When, when, will no. it? when that website will be up in a few weeks' time, will it? Easter. I'm looking for Easter. an Easter launch. Okay, future makers. And that you want creative people to also put their names on that so that they can interchange information like who's who's who in the I climate do. world. I do. Yep. I want all the climate, turned on climate artists yep. on it. All right, Future mm-hmm. Makers is the name. Thank you very much, Zelda. And she was Thanks, talking to Deb. us from Cairns. Thanks. Thanks very much, Deb. Okay, now the next person, I hope you stay here too, um, mm-hmm. is Mark. Pearson, he's a filmmaker whose Pilliger Rising is a tribute to activists in country New South Wales. Now, this is completely different. This is not zombies and all of this. Is, this is really very sincere country people who are determined to protect their land and their water from coal seam gas fracking. And Mark's film, I think, captures the, the true, you know, um, sincerity and genuineness of those people. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you, Vivian. I'm looking forward to seeing your film. I haven't seen it yet, but for our city and our overseas listeners, could you tell us what your film shows? You know, you show it filmically, but just describe in words the this magnificent um, Pilliger Forest and the Great Artesian Basin. It's a water reserve beneath the forest, but none of us have seen that. And yet I've heard many people wax so lyrical about it, it sounds like something they have seen. Could you tell uh, us about that? Yeah, that's one thing we couldn't actually film, obviously, because it's beneath the, the surface of the earth. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, the Pilliger is a million acres and it's the largest inland uh, forest in eastern Australia. So it's it's quite a big deal in terms of, you know, diversity for all the animals, but also for our communities of people. And, and the film is uh, really about four community leaders who uh, are rising up against the coal seam gas giants who they're up against and have been for the last decade um, to really yeah, pretty much save their, their pristine uh, land and, and their, obviously their farmlands that surround the forest. We've got uh, an Indigenous, young Indigenous multimedia student who's actually going into the bush, into the Pilliger and, and, and using drones and all sorts of um, funky uh, multimedia gear to, to, to look at sacred sites and then she's you know, using that footage to go back and, and talk to elders about that and, and question things around what they know and have there. So, so there's one character who's you know, really um, using the, the intergenerational um, uh, people from her family and mm. her community to, to understand the Pilliger even beyond what we know. Uh, then we've got uh, um, uh, a farmer who's a he's uh, a fifth generation farmer who's uh, you know he, he um, farms chickpeas. Uh, he's done six and a half million chickpeas in one year on one day a week. He talks about so you know we're talking about this is just one person. So you can imagine the the productivity that, you know, is capable um, or that we are capable of, of farming in this area. It's, you know, pristine farmlands and and these are some of the, the farms, you know, some of the biggest or, or most productive farms in Australia, which we, you know, we rely on for food security. So, and so we've got, that, that, that's the farming story. Then we've got um, a, a German potter uh, who's, came here in the 70s with her partner and found a beautiful piece of land and created, 
what we now know as uh, pillager pottery. So it's you know it's a mix of the the European arts with the Australian bush uh, all over the pottery, which is you know a real iconic centerpiece of the pillager, which uh, a lot of people go to visit. But she also brings together the community in many ways. And then we have an experienced citizen scientist who's you know he's um, he's been directly affected by uh, the water aspect uh, on his own farmland and um and so we we dive deep into the you know the subjective story with him where it's really affecting him personally and and so yeah we we see um four different characters from the four different worlds but what one thing that actually that they do all have in common is that these characters are extremely loyal to their community uh and their family businesses and and as i say you know we're talking about multimedia uh, multinational corporation up against community, common community. Yeah. Well, look, I've spoken to some of those people that are in your film. Um, Some of them came down to Parliament in Sydney and they had Bruce Robertson from the IEFA proving how uneconomic that gas will be because, listeners, this is about a massive gas export industry from there, isn't it? You know, they would exploit this area and there'd be no stopping it once it got started, if it did. And Lock the Gate, I think, has so far locked the gate against them. But uh, they came down to Parliament and they were chatting with all these parliamentarians. The parliamentarians were being very nice to them and, yes, all this listening. Um, But um, in that meeting, it was about the economics and the water, but the climate effect of the exported gas, which is the focus of our program. You know, we just can't bear the thought of the Pilliga gas and the Northern Territory gas ever being piped out and burned around the world. It's too late in history for that now. We can't bear that, but they were not, that wasn't really front of mind for them. And I wonder why do you think that is, that climate change isn't really the main issue for them? Well, you know, it does come back to dollars and cents for, for these people. I mean, when you talk to the coal seam gas people, the people that work at Santos and so forth, but they're decent people. They have families. They're just like you and I, in a sense. We're trying to live our lives, but they're on the other side of the coin. Um, these people are getting you know, paid a lot more than the average person. They, they might be on a $200,000 or $250,000 uh, wage per annum, but um, I really believe that you know that is really the the biggest thing underneath it that that economic factor. Because as you say, everything is to go north of Australia, right, following up through the Moomba pipeline, out the top of Australia and off to China. And I guess you know there's a lot of free trade agreements and agreements that you and I and everybody else are privy to that are done under the table. And um, you, you mentioned with your last um, um, last person you had on there, yep. the, the John, John Howard era. Well, I think if you look at the, the, the John Howard cabinet, all of those, that entire cabinet ended up working in either coal seam or gas or oil industries, but be it whether they're on boards or, or whatnot, but mm. the whole 36 or 42 of them. So there's, there's, a, there's a process for politicians um, working with major corporations to, you know, have a life after politics as well. So, um, you know, and that's been proven. There's plenty of evidence there to to show, as I say, through the the John Howard cabinet. You can look any of those people up to see where they're working now. Yeah, so you're saying those people, it's so real to them that everything that they, their businesses could be completely crushed and ruined by this, especially if the water is contaminated. Is that it? And. And so climate change is still a sort of a side issue 
as far as that's that. correct. I, mm. I think you know. I think we've got to a point which is a dangerous point where we're really just worrying about our, ourselves and our own little families, um, the microcosm of it all, to, to make sure that you know we have security and and whatnot. But we're not really thinking of the the macrocosm, and that is, hey, without water, without our own food here, we'll be relying on importing food from Asia. Mm. Um, is that is that going to be what we want really here in Australia? And do we really, yeah, as you say, do we really want to contaminate the waters here, which feed all those farms that we're talking about in the area? Yeah, look, we, we're... Um I, I see a battle between, you know, there's kind of a lot of slick propaganda. There's a lot of filmmakers probably used, I think, in making all those little YouTubes that say that yeah. fracking is great and it's a transition fuel. I've heard so much propaganda about gas being not really hardly, you know, having any emissions at all and it's all really attractive and glossy. And, clean um, coal. Yeah, yeah, and it's a battle between them. Yeah, and clean coal is the other one. But it's a battle between them and the protesters who are usually very ordinary or, as we saw, sort of artistic people. But, you know, like it's very homegrown with the protesters. And mm. I think film, as what you're doing, you're bringing another dimension to it, which is that empathy. And I wonder what sort of tricks of the filming trade did you try and use? What were you aiming to do to, to make it beautiful, to make it poignant, I imagine? Yeah, well, obviously we did use some you know, lovely technology of cameras to capture that beauty of the pelliger itself. But there weren't really any tricks, and I don't use any tricks as such in my filmmaking because and a lot of people come back to me and say, oh, you're, you're such a genuine filmmaker or your film is very genuine. Mm. And that is because I really do take uh, that simple truth of that person and put them in a beautiful situation, a beautiful environment, which is what they're trying to protect or save at the time, and, and really just aim to tell their story using as I said before, using their, um, I guess, loyalty to what they're doing, how they're helping their community, how they're... And get an understanding of the average Australian. I think this is one, one thing that we forget, that, you know, that because we live in cities and what have you, that, you know, really, what does go on out there in the farms? You know, what is the average Australian? What, mm. you know, what, what is Australia? And, and I think the variety of these people, these four characters in Pillage Rise, and really sum up and give you a, a bit of a, an understanding or at least one perspective of an identity uh, for Australia. Mm. Well, we just had a singer in here at the beginning of the show and her, one of the lines in her song was, the smoke is rising, you know, from the house is on fire. Um, the smoke is rising and so are we. And you've described mm. Pilliger rising, the people are rising because they're really guarding something so precious. People who are listening to this might not be able to get to the Transition Film Festival. So how can they mm. actually see it? I think there'd be community showings of this everywhere, wouldn't there? Yeah, we've had quite a lot already because it was um, it sort of it's been showing around New South Wales for the last sort of ten or twelve months. Um, but what you, one thing you can do is you can get in contact with the Wilderness Society or go onto their website, and um, pretty much we you can host a, a free screening. Um, so you just have to fill out the form and. What not? We still want to. We've, we've got licenses for the film because some of the music in the film is, you yeah. know, is licensed still just to, to New South Wales. But you know, we, we're also thinking about opening that up if, if we have enough uh, interest outside New South Wales to show the film because. 
especially Queensland, because Queensland are going through. Okay. They're kind of kind of ahead of New South Wales in terms of the, the coal sand gas yeah. tracking industry. But um, so oh. that's one way to get onto the, the wilderness. That's society. enough. Uh, that's enough, Mark, because that's too. We don't want to overload the listeners. So go to Wilderness sure. Society website. You can host a screening, and the film is called Pilliga Rising, and it's about the Pilliga area, which is north west New South Wales. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the film and talking to us today. Thanks, Vivian. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Oh, well, we're racing. Andy's giving me the wind-up, and so uh, we've got someone outside the door too to come for the next show. So, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that. This program is called The Future Makers from the Transition Film Festival, and we heard Carmen Mojito and her guitarist, Nia, Deborah Hart, who uh, is going to be on the panel tomorrow at the Nova Cinema called uh, at Global Thermostat. If you want to come to that film, we heard Zelda Grimshaw, whose website Future Makers is going to encourage all climate-friendly artists to come together, and Mark Pearson of the film Pilliger Rising. I'd like to thank Andy on panel today. And here are some things for you to do. Also, I said Peter Christoph as well, Associate Professor at Melbourne University, who helped me get my head around global thermostat but we'll come back to that subject later on i've got two minutes to go listeners i'm sure you're all sitting there with pen and paper and you know that i'm going to give you something to do this is your homework tuesday if you want to go 25th nova cinema 380 ligon street global thermostat thursday another film nova at 8:45 called earth seen from here it's a canadian poetic sort of film monday the first of march now i want you to go down to st michael's church in collins street if you're in the mood 6 30 p.m they're having a round table on the climate crisis and the bushfires wednesday the third of march we heard carmen tell us 6 30 at the ember lounge in st kilda she'll be launching her album I'd like you to check out the BZE podcast page for more details about all these subjects we've talked about tonight. And I will leave you with the words from an Inuk, the Inuk people, which I got from Zelda's webpage. Um, and the Inuk people say, Now is not the time for despair. Despair is a sin against the imagination. So you've been listening to Beyond Zero Emissions with Viv and Andy. We are not protesting. We are rebelling and dreaming our way into a new way of being on this earth. Good night and good luck.